In the sixth season of this podcast, we'll be looking at five great paintings that have something interesting to tell us about ourselves and our place in the world. You know, art's been called the universal language. Aristotle thought it was the greatest form of therapy. Nietzsche proclaimed that it's only through art that existence is justified, and that without music, life would be a mistake. Now, outside of some carvings, painting is one of the oldest of the arts. In fact, there's a painting in a limestone cave in Indonesia that's 45,000 years old. You know, it's amazing just how much human creativity and some colored pigment can do. I mean, paintings can bring about political change. They can stand as artifacts from distant places. They can provide some escape from our everyday cares. But maybe most importantly, they can be irreverent and open us up to new worlds no one has ever seen before. This is the wisdom of... And this is episode four... Frida Kahlo. Kahlo, deeply, deeply identified with the Mexican Revolution. Uh, she called herself a child of the Revolution, going so far as to say the year of her birth was 1910 to coincide with the overthrow of uh, Porfirio Diaz's dictatorship. She was actually born three years earlier. Beyond the fact that this tidbit uh, could have slotted into our season on authenticity, this is just one aspect of her life that we're going to be looking at. There have been discussions over and over, we've had them, on what's the best way to appreciate or understand art. Is it better to go in pure, knowing absolutely nothing about the artist and simply seeing the work for what it is? Or does knowing about the artist, her life, her history, her beliefs, help inform and add a deeper understanding? But for now, tell us about some of her paintings. Right. Okay. So, you know what? Today, I thought we wouldn't focus on just one painting, but maybe just speak more broadly about Frida and her works. But before this, let me just say something briefly about her life. So, Frida Kahlo is a Mexican painter who was born in 1907 and who died in 1954. At the age of 18, she was in a, in a bus accident where she suffered extensive injuries to her spine. She taught herself to paint while recovering in bed, and of her 143 paintings, 55 are self-portraits. Actually, about doing so many self-portraits, she said, I paint myself because I am so often alone and because I am the subject I know best. In 1929, she married the famous Mexican muralist Diego Rivera, who was twice her age. She was a a left-wing political activist all her life. And she even had an affair with the Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky, who was assassinated not too soon after their affair ended. Her paintings are considered by some to, to be surrealist in nature, 
and they explore, among other things, her relationship with her own body, her sexuality, and her national identity. Her work is now pretty much acknowledged as one of the most significant contributions to 20th century art. Uh, when we when we brought up her association with the Mexican Revolution, it, it really was brought up by us to show her connection to the idea of rebellion. She rebelled against the idea of a dictatorship. She rebelled against strict Catholicism in her country and so much more. I I don't know if this is true, but I even heard that when she was young, she she dared to flout early 20th century Mexican convention by shockingly wearing pants, you know, quote unquote, male clothing. But I guess most importantly for us here on this podcast, as it comes to her art, she didn't kowtow to, uh, I don't know, presented femininity with the qualities that are prized by the uh, superficial male, if I can borrow and ruin a Seinfeld quote. So what's what can we glean from her kind of disinterest in i don't know what they would call today the the male gaze yeah the the male gaze i think that's important here actually but before i get there let me just sort of back up a bit and say something about how it is that she depicts nude women i mean after all in several of her paintings we get a very different actually a a strikingly different kind of female nude don't we? And I think it's pretty obvious what she's doing, right? She's challenging the way the female has traditionally been represented in Western art. I mean, in many of these paintings, Frida depicts herself, her body, as blemished, bloody, and imperfect. And that's even to understate it sometimes. These are de-eroticized depictions of the body. In this way, I think she's, well, protesting against the institutionalized objectification of the female nude, which, by the way, would also include some of her husband's nudes. You see, it's the much-depicted odalisk which has been the epitome of the nude in Western art. Now, what's the odalisk? Well, at least in the West, it's come to be associated with a concubine. And by the 18th century, it came to be associated with a a genre of painting in its own right. One where you usually see a, a woman lying on her side on display for a spectator. Actually, now that I think about it, there's a painting by the French um, artist Ingres, which is a good example of this. It's called, appropriately, The Great Odalisk. Now, here you see a, a naked woman reclining where her her breast is partially revealed. Her body is, of course, smooth and supple and voluptuous. And the whole image of her, along with her glance, points to a kind of sexual availability. But more than this even, she seems possessed by the viewer who's looking at her. And the viewer here is, of course, a man. So, what do we have here? Well, one could argue that what we have here is a particular construction of female beauty and sexuality, which is the result of, well, male desire, a Pygmalion's Galatea. You know, 
It's interesting. Simone de Beauvoir, in her classic work, The Second Sex, says that representations of the world have mostly been the work of men. She says that men describe the world from their own point of view, but very importantly, a point of view that they confuse with absolute truth. In other words, how women have been represented by men is a particular construction and not an accurate reflection of reality. Now, I know that male artists have often justified their representations of women by appealing to things like um, abstract conceptions of form and beauty, right? But I don't know. I wonder if this is a kind of cover for a deeper relationship of subordination involved when male artists depict nude women. Anyway, so, so back to Frida. As I was suggesting, we notice how her nudes aren't positioned as the odalisks, and so they're not objectified or in positions of desire. There's no um, male gaze in the background here. A gaze which, well, often serves to conquer uh, a passive figure. No, far from it. Her figures aren't passive at all. And they definitely don't facilitate any male gaze. You know, related to all of this, there's another really interesting feature of several of Frida's paintings. Something I mentioned uh, at the start very briefly. And that's the depiction of blood. I mean, there's the blood of childbirth, of um, miscarriages, surgeries, and though it's not explicit by her, the blood of menstruation is possibly being referred to at times. Some examples here might be her paintings, um, My Birth, and the other one, Frida and the Miscarriage. Now, this is really interesting, because typically when we think of blood in paintings, we think of male heroes, right? That is, we think of blood being spilled in the context of a war or a fight, and we associate it with heroism or sacrifice. It's um, admirable and a, a, a badge of courage. For some reason, though it's not about war, the, the death of Seneca by Peter Paul Rubens comes to my mind here. But anyway, I don't think this is quite how female blood in all of its manifestations, is thought of, is it? In fact, for most of the history of art, there's been an unstated taboo against altogether depicting it. The, the reproductive body, in all of its manifestations, has been mostly hidden from society. Well, Frida doesn't seem to want to have any of this. She ignores all these taboos, this is a challenge to the values of traditional ideology, no? In some sense, her, her laying bare of blood is a symbol of emancipation. It's a calling for women to come out of their cleaned-up, culturally constructed status and to express themselves in their own light. So to bring it around to, I guess, a really famous topic, I want to think about a quote by Aldous Huxley when he said, perhaps it's good for one to suffer. Can an artist do anything if he's happy? Would he ever want to do anything? 
what is art after all, but a protest against the horrible inclemency of life? So is that true? And how does that reflect itself within her art? Yeah, great quote. So is it true? And is it relevant to Frida's art? Well, again, let me approach things from a a broader perspective first. So we live in a culture that has pretty much um, commodified the cultivation of happiness, right? And not only that, but this business empire of modern happiness seems bent on eradicating everything dark and uncomfortable too. It seems bent on annihilating melancholia and sadness. All agitations of the soul must go. Now, I don't doubt it that it's commonplace to think that suffering is bad and ought to be alleviated. But I'm not sure that this is right. I mean, first of all, various forms of suffering keeps your your body strong as it works to govern damage and repair. Actually, something like this was, was Nietzsche's view. He believed that health wasn't a lack of disease. It wasn't being in a, in a kind of serene condition free from troubles. No, it was the ability to overcome disease and to develop and to grow. In some sense then for him, health was measured in terms of the amount of sickness and suffering with which a person can successfully deal with. And Nietzsche himself was a pretty good example of this. And actually, so was the great German poet, Goethe, whose health also consisted in his successful weathering of any illness that befell him. And apparently there were lots. And it's amazing. It's uh, reported that even at the moment of his death, he cried out, More light. Talk about not wanting to slip into a serene condition, right? Anyway, now, now that I think about it, Nietzsche thought that suffering was important for, for other reasons as well. And one was that it was a great stimulant to artistic creation. Actually, Horace, too, recognized something like this when he said, Adversity reveals genius and prosperity conceals it. I mean, hasn't almost every great artist suffered in one way or another? I mean, Homer was blind. Beethoven was deaf, and Camus suffered from tuberculosis, and on and on and on. This is why Nietzsche admired the Greek tragic playwright so much. He saw their, um, their beautiful creations as a response, a triumphant response, to their suffering and their sensitivity to tragedy in general. In other words, they were strong enough to reaffirm life by creating something beautiful rather than succumbing to resignation in the face of the tragic nature of the world. Actually, this is why Nietzsche didn't agree with Schopenhauer's defeatism or the, or the Buddhists turning away from desire. He thought they all counseled giving up on life. Anyway, now it seems to me that Frida is remarkable in this way too, No? I mean, just think about how much she went through, how much she suffered in her brief life. I mean, at the age of six, she was stricken with polio. At age 18, she was in a bus when it overturned. And from this, she suffered numerous injuries, including a a broken spinal column, a, a broken collarbone, and 11 fractures 
in her right leg. I mean, no one thought she'd walk again. Throughout her life, she had relapses of tremendous pain and fatigue, which caused her to be hospitalized for long periods of time. She had to undergo more than 30 operations in her lifetime. Due to her spinal problems, she had to wear over 28 separate supportive um, corsets, varying from steel to plaster. She was treated for, for syphilis. She had her leg amputated. She had an abortion and three miscarriages. She had a tumultuous relationship with her husband. She suffered from bouts of depression and attempted suicide a couple of times. And she died at the age of 47, which may actually have been a successful suicide. Really, there's no way around this. Frida had to endure an absolutely incredible amount of suffering. In fact, she symbolizes her suffering, among other places, in her painting called Self-Portrait with Thorn Necklace and Hummingbirds, where she's, well, wearing a necklace of thorns, uh, a pretty clear reference to Jesus' crown of thorns, no? Now, given all of this, her vitality and perseverance is remarkable, isn't it? Actually, Reminiscent of, of Nietzsche, she even said that at the end of the day, we can endure much more than we think we can. But what's so remarkable, again, like Nietzsche admired so much, Frida accepted and used her suffering to transform it into something greater, namely her artworks. In other words, through her paintings, she gave aesthetic form to the drama of her physical and emotional suffering, of her scarred and crippled body. So, far from resigning herself to the tragedy that marked her life, through her art, she transcended it. My, what a triumphant response to suffering and a testament that profound despair can rouse itself to ever-new creation. Okay, but you know what? Now that I think about it, I think suffering is important for other reasons as well. Actually, one reason goes back to the tragic playwright Aeschylus and his play Agamemnon. In there, he tells us that wisdom comes through suffering, or alternatively, that he who learns must suffer. Now, I think this is really important to take stock of. And that's because the wisdom that comes from suffering is a particular kind of reflectiveness that you don't get from everyday positive experiences, right? That's to say, when we suffer, truly suffer, you know, have a traumatic life experience, we generate much more, well, self-reflection, which is obviously beneficial. In other words, suffering instigates our trying to understand and make sense of our experiences and to fit them into a broader narrative. And not only that, but the insights we get through this sort of self-reflection leads to, well, just a deeper understanding of life and so a more complex appreciation of it. Now, I'm not saying that we should all spend our time dwelling on the tragedies of our life to the exclusion of its pleasures. We shouldn't, you know, wallow in our suffering. No, that would be foolish. 
since it wouldn't be doing justice to the variety that is life. But what I do think is that there is a certain, well, let's call it thinness of reflection that's associated with a society saturated with smiley faces and with the promises of perpetual ease and pleasure, with static contentment. This sort of existence rarely moves us to look too deeply into things, especially into ourselves and the meaning of our lives as a whole. And you know, since I headed down this path, I think there's at least one more important benefit of suffering. And that's that it's productive of certain virtues. Actually, the, the ancient cynics knew this very well. I mean, they used to intentionally expose themselves to freezing cold temperature or lie down in red-hot sand so as to harden themselves, to cultivate strength of mind. And as far as I can remember, one of them even tried to eat raw meat, though I'm not sure how well that went for him. But real, genuine tragedy teaches us much more than this, of course. Among other things, when we succumb to suffering, this cultivates compassion and empathy, right? Since now we ourselves know what this experience is like. And of course, it also teaches us humility, that we are vulnerable, finite beings living in a much larger world that will, without a moment's notice or pause, go on without us. And fortitude, too, is clearly one of the gifts of suffering, isn't it? And as we've seen, Frida is a great example of this one. You know, all said and done, I think once again Nietzsche in his Gay Science, articulates all of this wonderfully in one question. There he asks us whether a tree that is supposed to grow up to a proud height can really dispense with bad weather and storms. Well, the message seems pretty clear. The strong grow in response to opposition. Or better still, how great we can be lies uncomfortably close to how low life might take us. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Vincent.